technical giants. Anything of these types of thoughts, we might be running dangerously close to the apostasy that the church, such as the Archangel Michael or angels in general, will exercise rule and authority in a manner that rivals or surpasses the leadership of Christ in the age to come. Historically, there was these sects, these groups of religious people who were granting, even in the historical record, too much deference to figures, apocalyptic figures like angels, and they saw them in some way responsible for the future to bring peace in some way, in a way that would compete with Christ. And perhaps this was the state of the mindset of the people who needed to hear this letter. Hughes goes on to say of the angels, and he summarizes the message and theme of this opening section of Hebrews by saying, they, the angels, are but instruments of His, Christ's, kingship, and their ministry is but an expression of His sovereignty. They are, that is, these angels are, angels are, but instruments of Christ's kingship, and their ministry is but an expression of His sovereignty. Amen. And so it is with everything in the created order. Any legitimate aspect of the created order, it exists for the pleasure of the King of Kings. It is only legitimate insofar as it is an instrument of Christ's kingship, and it is a ministry or a minister or a servant of, an expression of Christ's sovereignty, serving in subordination to Him according to His will in this earth. I have an application test for you. I'm going to read to you two quotes. Answer me in your own mind. Don't have to give an audible answer, but two quotes to ponder. These are two uh, thoughts from three different theologians. The second was co-authored. The first was a single author. Which sounds like a better application of the heart of Hebrews 1 to you? Which of these two excerpts? The first I'm reading is from Alexander Duff. It was a message given to the Council of the Church of Scotland in 1866. And he writes as follows. Let us press forward resolved that we shall not desist or pause in our onward cause and career of victory until Christ's crown is triumphantly planted on the last citadel of the hitherto unconquered realms of heathenism. Let us, reading again, press forward, resolve that we shall not desist or pause in our onward cause and career of victory until Christ's crown is triumphantly planted on the last citadel of the hitherto unconquered realms of heathenism. Does that sound like Christocracy to you? Does that sound like the sufficiency and supremacy of Christ to you? Now consider this second quote by Hart and Mather, Muther, something like that. This is modern authors writing now. Modern authors within the same strain of church denomination today writing. The spirit, quote, the spirituality of the church is the reformed way of keeping religion and politics separate and of letting the church be the church as the Lutheran sociologist Peter Berger has written, neither the, quote, left, lefts or the rights Political agenda belongs in the pulpit, in the liturgy, or in any statements that claim to have the authority of the gospel, 
Any cultural or political agenda is a manifestation of works, righteousness, ipso facto, an act of apostasy. So to summarize, the first quote issues a charge to bring the crown rights of Christ, as it were, to the hitherto unconquered realm's reaches of the unbeliever. And the second one says there are cleanly quarantined areas of life. This is my summary. This is my paraphrase. Religion and politics. And very seldom will the twain meet. Which of those two sounds more like an application of Hebrews 1 to you? Perhaps venture an answer more fully after exploring some of these Old Testament texts, a heading for the rest of the message for us this morning. Christ's supremacy proven by four of seven citations. First of all, Psalm 2. Christ alone is the transnational sovereign. Secondly, from 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17, Christ alone rules by divine right. These are summary themes in my words of the context from which our author is borrowing from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 32, point number three. Christ alone is the rock of history. And point number four from Psalm 104, all others are mere ministers of him. Let's turn to Psalm 2 briefly this morning. As you're turning there, let me reread Hebrews 1.5. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Pausing at that first half of the verse, we have in the record of the New Testament in the book of Hebrews a quote, a direct quote from this messianic psalm of the Old Covenant. Why do the nations rage, Psalm 2.1, and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest He be angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. The author of Hebrews, recalling verse 7, says, in reference to the angels, to which of the angels has He ever said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. I think the message from Psalm chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 1 and the greater testimony of Scripture as to Christ's authority is in part that it is better distinguished by degree rather than kind. Christ's authority is distinguished by degree rather than kind. What do we mean? If we read Psalm chapter 2, We see authorities over nations, but Christ's authority is distinguished in that it's greater degree. It's not that Christ is not authoritative over America. It's not that Christ is not authoritative over the Middle East 
Russia, Crimea, Ukraine, these areas that we think of where powers clash and authorities, Hamas and Israel, are brought to bear even today in modern history. It's not that Christ is not Lord over them. He is. But Christ's lordship is distinct, not in kind, but in degree. The fact is, Christ has greater rule, greater sovereignty, final word, and ultimate authority over all of those nations I just mentioned, including our own, and all nations of all of history. When we read in the Old Testament, we see the wicked nations being used by God to bring judgment against His covenant people who had broken faith with Him. We read several weeks ago that Assyria, God described Assyria as a tool. He uses imagery like a farmer reaching into a nest, pulling out the eggs that he wants, or using them like a battle axe for his sovereign affliction and purposes to bring judgment, correction, to bring annihilation, to bring a sense of the ultimacy of people's decisions finally to bear. God employs nations in his sovereignty, and he does, has and does to this day. Christ rules. Christ rules over all nations. His authority is distinguished by degree rather than kind. Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, When Christ was on the precipice of his ascension to the Father, in fulfillment of Daniel seven thirteen and 14, where the Son of Man rises to the Ancient of Days to present to him the fullness and consummate final action that turns over authority over redemption for the blood-purchasing power of the elect. When he, in Matthew 28, 18, declares the meaning of his consummate work in his kingdom, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. His authority is distinguished by degree. All authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Therefore, go. In the past, the church, I think, probably, usually, motivated by fear of man, has tended to be reclusive of these kind of authority claims, has tended to seek out refuge in a quarantined environment that does not force us to be accountable to assert the Lordship of Christ in realms where people don't want to hear it by saying things like, well, didn't Jesus say my kingdom is not of this world? And he did say that to Pilate in John chapter 18. But continue to read. Get the whole context and you will find Jesus answering Pilate by saying, you would have no authority unless it were granted by my heavenly Father. And then you read the testimony in the book of Acts after the Holy Spirit reveals the meaning of the events of this very hour. And we find that sovereign, prescriptive, decretive language in the prayer of the disciples. When all these forces were gathered according to your sovereign hand to do whatever you had decreed to come to pass. Jesus' authority is distinguished by degree. But any kind of authority represented by lesser degree on this earth, you better believe he has authority in kind. The only difference is, is it is greater, ultimate, final, and conclusive. He will, has had, and always will have the last word. In prior days, God spoke to us by the prophets, but what does the author attest? In Hebrews 1, 1, and 2, today he has spoken to us by his Son. That is an authoritative word. 
Christ alone is the transnational sovereign. In this section in Psalm chapter 2, it's one of those moments where the degree of Christ's authority is illustrated by the scope. And we see that Christ has authority over nations. So to demonstrate how powerful Jesus Christ is in this messianic psalm, the language employed describes him as sitting in the heavens laughing. The Lord holding those who make self-attesting authority claims he holds them in derision. That, mean he, that means he mocks and laughs at them. The heavenly rule and authority does not take seriously the autonomous, self-aggrandizing, megalomaniacal, megalomaniacal, so I shouldn't have even tried that one, claims of the kings of this earth. The rule of heaven laughs at those who say, I am God. The rule of heaven laughs at legislators who say there is no higher rule or authority to answer to. God in heaven and His Son laughs at those who stand in opposition and defiance to His word and will. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, verse 6, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree that the Lord said to me. Later it says, be warned, O kings, verse 10. Be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun. In Near Eastern imagery, this would be an expression of submission to the rule. You kiss the signet ring, it's deference, it's a recognition to the authority that that ring represents when you're in the presence, in the throne room of this king. And if we don't do this, we're told if the kings themselves, in fact, don't do this, verse 12, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But conversely, blessed are all who take refuge in him. What does this term begotten mean? I've also marked this in my notes. When it says in Psalm 2, in verse 7, The Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Those in the past have falsely assumed that that means that there was a point in time where Christ himself was born or came to be, that he was begotten as it were in time, like a mere man. That is indeed not the case. That's blatant heresy. You might have had some people knocking at your door who believe that type of thing. But when the word of the Lord employs this term begotten, it's an expression that indicates something of significant fulfillment in the culmination of predestined events. In other words, at a certain point in history, God intervenes and His decree is begotten at this time in a way that reveals it in a newness of light what He had forever planned to the onlookers who read his word or hear the message from his prophets. We know this from Acts chapter 13, for instance, where Paul speaks of begotten language, even this same language of Psalm chapter 2 in reference to the resurrection. Paul here is preaching. He's preaching in hitherto unconquered realms of heathenism, to use Alexander Duff's words, And as he brings his message, he says the following in verse 32 through 35, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, No more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way. 
I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. And so we see a parade of citation in Paul's writing here, reminiscent of Hebrews, that reaches back to old covenant language to identify a significant milestone in redemptive historic history. When Christ rose from the dead, God's plans were begotten, as it were. It was a culmination of fulfillment in time of God's predestined plan to declare victory over the last enemy, death, as we read in 1 Corinthians 15. So Christ alone is the transnational sovereign. He rules by creative right. He rules by His authoritative right upon His resurrection and ascension to His Father. And He rules over the redemption of His own by the purchasing power of His own blood. Secondly, Christ alone rules by divine right. The author of Hebrews brings us back to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Move there also with me this morning, if you will, to remind us of the superiority of Christ and His reign. There is no angelic claim to this kind of significance, the kind of significance that we see in the Old Covenant language of the prophet when Nathan approaches David, who himself was in the lineage of Christ, and gives the following prophecy, 2 Samuel 7, 8 and following. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. The violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. You shall come from your body, who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Again, in distinction, contradistinction to the false authority claims in the minds of the hearers, the writer of Hebrews says again in 1.5, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. For to which of the angels did God ever say anything like that? None. No one. No angel no name, no rule, no power of authority. The author of Hebrews recognizes and emphasizes the supremacy of Jesus Christ by identifying that he is in the Davidic line of the Messiah. This implies any number of things, but especially God's sovereignty. His sovereignty to preserve through this physical lineage that which would be 
eventually the seed that would produce Jesus Christ himself. And thus the fullest expression of fulfillment of this prophecy given thousands of years ago to David was manifest when Jesus Christ was born to Mary. That prophecy was, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. In the Christocracy that now rules and reigns, that is the throne in the throne room of Jesus Christ, it rules and reigns, he rules and reigns forever. The Davidic line of the Messiah has no shelf life. It continues on forever and ever. And now Jesus Christ is seated, even as we speak, at the right hand of the Father, issuing decrees, dispensing, dispatching angels to carry them out, interceding on behalf of all of His own as our high priest before the throne of God to make, as it were, sufficient mediatorial sacrifice for our sins. He has done so once and for all by His blood and He continues in His role forever representing us before the Father. There's also the Melchizedek line in Hebrews 7 verses 1 through 3 that the author identifies not only as Jesus of the line of David, but it's also stated in Psalm 110 as he later, the author of Hebrews later cites and as he later expounds in Hebrews chapter 7, Jesus Christ is also from the line of this mysterious Old Testament figure, Melchizedek. Here, the nature of Melchizedek's character and his significance, his identity is brought to bear to identify the person and the work and the rule of Jesus. It says in 7.1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Later in verse 17, for it is witnessed of him, meaning of Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Christ alone rules by divine right. And his divine right, the lineage the royalty in the line of Jesus Christ includes the prophecies of old to David and the mysterious multi-office of one Melchizedek who is both king and priest. And Jesus Christ is our prophet and he is our king and our priest. And thus we see in the Davidic line and the Melchizedek line of Christ's own messianic and divine office, the multi-office of Him and His work and His rule. Christ's supremacy is proven by this citation and by this later extension of reference to Melchizedek when the author references 2 Samuel 7, 8 through 17. Thirdly, Christ's supremacy is proven from the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32. Perhaps a summary statement to identify the theme of this chapter, Christ alone is the rock of history. This one is a little more mysterious. 
but upon further study, is remarkable in its illusions. As we read in Hebrews 1, 6, And again, when he brings forth the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. That's reference number three, citation number three from the book of the law, Deuteronomy 32. So turn there briefly with me, if you will. Here, for the first time in the history of covenant Israel, the, identif- the identity of God, the father of this people, who bore them, verse 18, who gave them indeed birth, is referenced by this term, capital letters, rock. Moses poetically describes and declares and reveals the nature of God's rule to the people by identifying Him as the rock. There was a rock in the wilderness that was struck, that provided for them sustenance in the desolate place. That rock is later identified, I believe in 1 Corinthians 10, as Jesus Christ Himself. The author of Hebrews identifies the rock as Jesus Christ when he cites an allusion from verse 43. Rejoice with Him, O heavens, we read. Bow down to Him, all gods. For He avenges the blood of His children and takes vengeance on His adversaries. He repays those who hate Him and cleanses His people's land. Just an example of the kind of themes that Moses is emphasizing here. First of all, we see that the sons of God in reference to the children of Israel are subordinate to the Lord. We read in 32.3, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. Later he says, and so this is going to be an example of the greatness of the rock of God revealed to the Israelites. He says by example, verse 8, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance... When he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. What is this reference to the sons of God? Well, it's an adoption reference to his favored people. The sons of God in this reference are the children of Israel. But Christ is over these, and Christ is Lord over them. He is Lord insofar as He is powerful to provide atonement and safety and sufficiency for them. And He is also powerful to bring consequences and retribution when they break His covenants. We continue to read in verse 9, But the Lord's portion is His people, Jacob His allotted heritage. So Jacob is the reference to the sons of God then. And we see in verse 10, He, that is, the rock, found him, Jacob, or the sons of God, in a desert land and in the howling waste of the wilderness. He encircled him. He cared for him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, burying them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided him. No foreign God was with him. Where are God's people to find safety? No foreign God. Only in the wings that are pictured here representing the care and concern of Almighty God. Only in the care that is exhibited by the rock who in a paternal sense bore them, gave them birth, fathered them, nurtured them in the wilderness. Verse 18. The sons of God, meaning the children of God, His own, His people, are subordinate to Him inasmuch as they are dependent on His grace. 
Yet later we read an extension of this kind of authority that God has over his people in verse 21. There's a shift. They made me jealous with what is no God. They have provoked me to anger with their idols. So I will make them jealous with those who are no people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Do you see here again how the sons of God, his people, people on the earth are subordinate to God? In this case, when they worship idols, when they depend on other things for safety, when they find their refuge in salvation outside of his exclusive prescription, then what do they do? They make him jealous with what is no God. It is a ridiculous, idolatrous, futile notion outside of God to find safety and security. And during that time, those times of wandering, God showed his superiority over his people by bringing chastising judgment. And so we see that Christ alone is the rock of history. And we see as the rock, the sons of God, his own, are subordinate under him. And we also see in the second reference I just mentioned, subordinate adversaries. The false gods, the idols, they are indeed no God. They are subordinate to him and laughably so. And we see even the nations that are raised up for judgment that bring uh, problems for God's people. They themselves are nothing compared to him. Verse 27, had I not feared provocation by the enemy, lest their adversaries should, lest their adversaries should misunderstand, lest they should say, our hand is triumphant. It was not the Lord, or it was not the Lord who did all this, for they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? For their rock is not our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. For their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. Later, he says, verse 20, 35, vengeance is mine. God speaking in the first person and recompense for, this time, for the time when their foot shall slip for the day of their calamity is at hand and their doom comes swiftly. Christ alone is the rock of history and his people are subordinate to him and his adversaries are subordinate to him. And thirdly, and this is the direct reference in Hebrews, even the heavenly beings are subordinate to him. Verse 43, rejoice with him, O heavens, bow down to him, all gods. And in this reference, it's better translated, perhaps, all servants or heavenly beings. Those created beings of another dimension proceeding to do God's will. Even they are commanded and do bow and serve at his pleasure. For he avenges the blood of his children. Again, 43, and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's lands. And so we see in every possible sense that when Christ is identified with the rock of Deuteronomy 32, that he is identified with the rock of ages. And there is no power over him. And indeed, everyone is subject to him. And finally, for the purpose of this morning's message, the fourth citation that we'll cover is from Psalm 104. All others, that is, all other entities, if you will, are mere ministers. Christ's supremacy is proven by this quotation as well. In the book of Hebrews, 
once again, continuing in our main section there, chapter 1, the author goes on to declare in verse 7, now of the angels directly, he says, of the angels he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. And then later there'll be another citation, but of the sun he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. So the idea here being, if the angels are not elevated to a point of competition with Christ's glory, though heavenly and amazing and spectacular to some degree, they do not hold a candle to him and never will, what is their design purpose? Their design purpose is declared to us by a reference from Psalm 104. They are ministers. They are like his winds. They are like his flames of fire. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. In Psalm 104, perhaps we don't have time to cover this whole song, psalm, but in the midst here we see, in the context we see, that there is an emphasis on the created, on creation as distinct from the creator. The creator, creation, distinctive. For instance, verse 3, he lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers flames of fire. So just like the Lord lays out plans and engineers the beams over the chambers of the waters, and even as he commands the elements of even the weather as a chariot for his purposes, so it is with the celestial beings. They are his messengers, and they proceed at his pleasure and his command. It continues verse 5 with more distinctive creation language. He sets the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Moved, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains at your rebuke. They fled. Talks about God's sovereignty over the course of nature, over natural events. How manifold are your works, verse 24. In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. And we see here an emphasis on the supremacy of God as creator in the fact that everything outside of him is created and therefore under him. In the close of this chapter, the psalmist concludes by saying in verse 33, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have been, while I remain with the creative ability, capacity, to speak and to declare, may the vocal tones proceeding from these chords be dedicated to the worship of that God who made my mouth in the first place. And then verse 34, may my meditation be pleasing to Him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Verse 35, he closes, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. In Psalm 104, all others outside of the triune God are mere ministers. And they had better bow and better serve. Otherwise, they will be judged. Angels are like citing, as is the case in the law, the minimal case, if you will. This is a concept, and follow me just closely for a moment. I think you'd find it beneficial. Why does the author of Hebrews use the example of angels when he is drawing a distinction between the supremacy of Christ and the supremacy of anything else. Well, it is indeed in part because 
with angels, there's nothing created that we can imagine having a higher or a closer relationship to the aspects of God's nature and being. That is to say, when the author says, inciting this basic case, that the angels serve at the pleasure of God, and they are creative beings, and they have no autonomous power and authority, then you can be certain that everything less than angels is also subject to his ultimate rule and authority. And what does this include? It includes kingdoms, empires, it includes the plans of kings and men, it includes everything we can possibly imagine. All under Christ are mere ministers, or they're in rebellion. We are His servants. We are His slaves. We, if you are in Christ, are His minister, joining alongside the angels. The angels said this to John. John, the angels are so spectacular, John himself almost worshipped one revelation on a couple of occasions. But the angel said, do not do so. Why? I'm a co-laborer with you. I'm a minister right alongside you. I myself worship the God who created me. Join me in worship of him. Do not worship me. And thus, when the author cites angels, we know by extension, by inference, that there is no authority, nothing that competes with Christ. His audience needed to hear this. And his audience needed to be reminded that angels themselves and any other impressive entity is derived, dependent, contingent, and created, and thus subordinate and lesser and under the Christocracy of Jesus. Even the civil governments in Romans 13, verse 4 and 6 are described as servants and ministers. Servants and ministers. Let's ask ourselves the question today, as we put ourselves in the shoes of the hearer of this epistle, what do we find impressive? What do we find reassuring? What compels us? What moves us to fear? What causes us to stand at attention? What compels obedience? What moves us in decision-making? What shapes our schedule? What causes our deference to anything? What causes us to bow the knee? What do we consider authentic, powerful, fascinating, and hopeful? The message of Hebrews 1 is, if the answer to any of those things is anything less than Christ, anything within the created realm, we must repent and realize that those things... Any number of them or any one of them serves at the pleasure of Jesus Christ, our Lord. It occurs to me that by application, we don't live in a culture that is tempted to place all their eggs in the basket of angels. The recipients of this letter perhaps were. But I mentioned several times in the course of this message and application related to the state. Now that is a different story. Many are tempted in this culture, in this day and age, to place all the eggs in the, their eggs in the basket of the state, as it were. The state will provide our health care. The state will eliminate discrimination. The state will define law. The state will bring peace. The state will broker a ceasefire between Hamas and Israel. The state will redefine marriage. The state will take care of you in old age. The state will tell you this, will tell you that, unaccountable to any higher law. And this is an environment we are, quite frankly, saturated in. And I know, for one, that there's at least several areas in my own life 
or I am guilty of bowing the knee, at, the, at least implicitly, to the state to one degree or another, where I have not considered Christ as Lord over every area. And I need to hear the word of warning from the book of Hebrews that says that even the state, as it is with angels, are instruments, this in the words of our commentator, a huge writing and summary form as to these themes. They are an instrument, according to Romans 13, of Christ's kingship, and their ministry is but an expression of His sovereignty. And unless the state is an expression of Christ's sovereignty, it is out of order, out of line, and it needs a word of correction from the church. Consider that test that we introduced this message with. How should we consider our calling under these conditions? Do we have a charge to pray for and work towards and march after bringing the rights of Jesus Christ triumphantly until they're planted on the last citadel of hitherto unconquered realms of heathenism? Or are we to hide behind a so-called notion of the spirituality of the church? Christ rules only in the heart and he doesn't exercise a rod of iron over nations. Announce and proclaim first to yourself and secondly to your neighbor that Jesus is Lord. And if you do so, you will be standing alongside the shoulders of the author of Hebrews who said that there is nothing higher than Christ. But to him and him alone was it said, you are my son, today I have begotten you. I will be to you a father, you shall be to me a son. Let all God's angels worship him. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning. The heavens are the work of your hands. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1 warns us of the consequences of not believing what is here proclaimed. Therefore, we must pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. We must hold ourselves accountable to the authority and the sufficiency and the primacy of the Word of God. And that's in part why we gather in this place this morning. This same book says, don't forsake the assembly of yourself together. Because when you open up this scripture and you consider it your standard, you are paying closer attention so that you do not drift in a day and an age that will lead waves of otherwise confessing Christians toward the cliff of apostasy. We see it now, statistically speaking. We will likely see it in increasing measure in the coming days. What is the antidote? Pay close attention to what you have heard in this book so that you may not drift. This warning, Hebrews 2.1, occurs alongside a whole list of warnings throughout the book and we'll cover them in the course of in future months, Lord willing, going through this. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 through 4, 3. Chapter 4, 14 and 16, 5, 11 through 6, 18. It goes on and on. There's warning language all throughout this book. Just the temptation to exalt angels to an unwarranted degree was enough to issue a bold and very distinct and sober warning. Let us pay close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. Let us remember what the author says in chapter 12 in the close of this book. And this will transition us to communion this morning when he is closing in doxological fashion in worshipful fashion he says in verse 22 but you have come sorry yes to the mount zion and to the city of the living god the heavenly jerusalem 
and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than Abel. And again in the close of chapter 13. Now may the God of peace, verse 20, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This morning, we have a great means to be remember to remember as the scriptures otherwise say in other places say to remember and to proclaim the work of Christ the blood of the covenant that saved us the rule and reign of Christ not over not only over all the nations of the earth but over sin and death the ultimate of all enemies and so in a moment we will dismiss for communion but let's transition in prayer close your eyes and bow your head with me if you would Oh, Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless this time as we strive to be obedient to you. When you said, take this bread and eat, it is my body. Take this cup and drink, it is my blood. Help us to remember exactly what that means. Help our affections to be stirred. Awaken the confidence of our soul and move us to repentance if need be and equip us for the calling of declaration of these truths beyond these walls. By the power of Christ's name alone, we pray, amen.